want to encourage you now to turn into your Bibles to the book of John. The book of John. We continue in the book of John as we have been studying this book uh, for the past uh, year and quarter or so. John chapter 12, our passage for our scripture reading will come from verses 27 all the way through the end of the chapter, 27 through 50. John chapter 12, verse 27 through 50. The Lord Jesus has entered into Jerusalem and uh, through what is often known as the triumphal entry, the coronation of him, to the praise of the people, and he comes and he says in verse 27 of John chapter 12, and the scriptures read, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. And nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me, sees the one who sent me. I have come 
as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke in what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Father, we thank you for the hearing and the reading of your word. We pray, O oh Father, that we might have our eyes open, the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and wonderful things from thy precious law. In Jesus' name, amen. In ancient Rome... There were tens of thousands of people who would gather in the Colosseum. And they would gather in the Colosseum to watch as Christians were torn apart by wild animals. Paul Rader, who was, I think, the general of the Salvation Army back in the 1990s, he commented on his visit to the Colosseum in Rome. If you've ever been there, he said, I stood uncovered to the heavens above where he sits, for whom they gladly died, and asked myself, would I, could I die for him tonight to get this gospel to the ends of the earth? I prayed most fervently in that Roman arena for the spirit of a martyr and for the working of the Holy Spirit in my heart as he worked in Paul's heart when he brought him on his handcuffed way to Rome. Those early Christians, quote, lived on the threshold of heaven within a heartbeat of home, no possessions to hold them back, unquote. Within a heartbeat of home, they lived. Would you ever pray that prayer, that prayer that says, give me the heart and the spirit of a martyr that I might be able to live and die for the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you ever be able to say, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and then the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death? The willingness to die for Christ, the willingness to give of one's life for Christ, the willingness of dying so that the gospel might bear fruit, that was the intention of Jesus, even as Jesus, back in verse 24 of this particular chapter, said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit, speaking of himself. Last week, we had looked at the triumphal entry of Jesus on what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday, the day after the feast that Mary had anointed Jesus with perfume, a very expensive perfume. Her and 
Martha and Lazarus were at the house of Simon the leper and crowds had gathered to see the miracle that Jesus had done and the raising of Lazarus. And though they, they had gathered to him because they heard that Jesus was around as well and they believed and here Jesus came in the earlier part of chapter 12 and approached Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives. And he had sent two of his disciples to go and fetch a colt, a young donkey. And they came back with a young donkey and his mother. They had thrown their coats over the young donkey and Jesus came to Jerusalem as he came over the Mount of Olives, there's a great crowd, the scriptures say, a great crowd with him. And the scriptures also tell us that there were thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, I should say hundreds, if not thousands of people coming out of Jerusalem to meet him. They lined the way and they threw their coats down as an act of homage that would be given to a king. They took palm branches and also threw them down on the ground and they praised Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem and they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It's a word of praise. Hosanna is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that literally meant help, I pray, or save, now I pray. And they praised Jesus as they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even to the king of Israel, from Psalm 118, which is called the Conqueror's Psalm. And it was a declaration, as a declaration, an acclamation of who he was, the king of Israel. And so they sang as Jesus rode in on this donkey, on this young colt, into Jerusalem, and they said, Save now, I pray, King of Israel, who comes in the name of God. The atmosphere was electric. They were excited about the hope that they had because perhaps now the Messiah would come and has come in Jesus Christ. But their concept of who the Messiah was, that he would be a Messiah who would rule and set up his rule and overthrow Rome. But Jesus knew. He knew the truth of what would happen. He knew the hearts of the people and their motives. He knew what they wanted. And as he rode in Jerusalem, the scriptures say that he wept. Luke 19, 41 when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. The people didn't recognize who Jesus was. The King of glory, the Son of God, the Messiah who would die for the sins of the world? No. But Jesus knew. He knew the future. And the future was that in A.D. 70, Rome would come in, they would destroy the city, and they would slaughter some 1.1 million people. Verses 23 and 24, he crushed their idea by talking about his own death, about losing one's life, about hating one's life, a Semitic metaphor if one wanted to save their life. If anybody wanted to follow him, they must follow him to the cross. If anybody wanted to be his disciple, they needed to take up their own cross, the willingness to give of their life to Jesus. 
to die for the sake of the Savior and what they believed. That was what it meant to take up one's cross. And therein lies the challenge. Are we willing to follow Jesus to the cross? If we were part of that crowd that praised him on the way into Jerusalem, that very last week of his life, when it was only days away, when he would go to the cross, would we have followed him? So as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, his focus, his focus is on the cross, his trial, his suffering, his shame, his humiliation, and his death are all just days away. It is on his heart, it is on his mind, and we look at this passage today, his expression, as these things are on his mind. And one thing that dominates his mind above all of the suffering that he will face is the glory of God, is the glory of God. So in verse 27, he expresses, my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came for this hour. Father, glorify your name. With the cross in view, he has a troubled soul. It is a strong word. It is a strong word used figuratively of meaning severe mental or spiritual agitation, of being disturbed, of being upset, being unsettled. It's difficult to understand what that would have been like in the Savior's anguish because we do not have a sinless life, but we can imagine perhaps one who would face death can possibly imagine what it might be like, but for the sinless Savior, the thought of bearing the sins of thousands, if not millions of people by then, his soul was troubled. There is an honest and candid expression of Jesus as well, of his humanity, for he says, Father, save me from this hour, much like you might recall in a few days when he will be praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, Luke twenty-two, forty-two, And yet not my will, but yours be done. The inner conflict of his honest and genuine expression of the turmoil in his own humanity, he expresses here. And he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. In other words, would I say that in his own thoughts and his troubled heart? But no. For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Looking through the eyes of Jesus, the near-term suffering paled in comparison to the glory that God would receive. That was the aim of the life of Christ. His aim was to bring glory to God, even in his trial and his death, his suffering and his resurrection. And that is the purpose as well by which we were created, the purpose of why we live, the underlying motivation in our own lives is to be people who bring glory to God. As we're always reminded in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And the bottom line in our decisions, and the bottom line in our motives, 
The bottom line in what we decide to do or not to do is to ask ourselves, am I doing it that God might receive the glory? Am I doing it because this will please God? The way that I spend my time, the way that I spend my money, the way that I spend my recreational entertainment choices or eating or drinking? Am I living for the glory of God? Or am I living and choosing things because it's easiest, because it makes me feel good, because it satisfies my sinful desires, or because the consequences may not be so great, or because, what? well, I've been offended, I won't do that, or do we quit doing the right thing, or we feel that God is not even a part of my world, and so we do what we want to do? Is that why? We do. The purpose in our lives is to bring glory to God. Eric Liddell, an Olympic athlete who was later a missionary to China, he said, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Is that what you feel when you live life? When you live life, do you feel God is pleased? The smile of God is upon what you're doing? You please the Lord Jesus? Well, after Jesus prayed, the voice came out of heaven. I both glorified it and will glorify it again. This is the third time. This is the third time that a voice from heaven came to affirm who Jesus was. The first time was when Jesus was baptized. The second time was at the Mount of Transfiguration. And the third time is here. The crowd stood by. Some thought it, was, some thought it had thundered. Others thought that it was an angel who spoke. Jesus said, the voice didn't come for my sake, but for yours. They heard the voice. It was like thunder or an angel, but they couldn't comprehend. They didn't recognize or attribute it to the voice of God. It's indicative of people who do not know God, indicative of people who do not know God. The problem is not that God is not clear. God is clear. Even as we can read here in the text of Scripture, God is clear. The problem is that people are sinners and are deaf. When we do not hear, it's just like Paul on the road to Damascus, when he was reflecting on what happened on that road to Damascus in Acts chapter 22, Paul reflects back on that event in verse 9, and he says, And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. They heard something, but they didn't understand just like Jesus said in Matthew 13, while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Those who do not believe, dead in sin, are blind to the truth and have no capacity. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. So don't be surprised if you're sharing about God's truth to those who are not Christians, those who don't know God and they don't understand. The Lord speaks to us through His Word and the world does not understand. 
unless God opens the eyes of their heart. It wasn't, again, so that Jesus would know. It was for the sake of the people. It's for the sake of the people. Then he says, judgment has come. Judgment is upon the world, and the ruler of the world will be cast out. You see, there would be three things that would happen. Jesus would face the cross, and the first thing would be that the judgment would be upon the world. Secondly, the world ruler would be cast out. And thirdly, he will draw all men to himself. The word world there in this particular context is the world cosmos, from which we get the word cosmetics. And the reference to Satan being the ruler of the world is not the physical world, but about this world system, the values of this world, the things that this world represents, the sinful things. As Satan would rebel against God, and that would all come to an end. But how is the world to be judged? If Jesus didn't come to judge, you might recall in John chapter 3, if you turn with me back to John chapter 3, verse 16 and following. Oftentimes, we have the children memorize John three sixteen, and that is a very well-known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world, verse 17, to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. You see, the world is already under judgment, and if someone does not come to Christ, they remain under that judgment. And the Jews rejected Jesus and will remain under that judgment. So the world is under judgment. Satan will be cast out. The rule of ruler of this world system, the authority or his influence will end. And thirdly, Christ will draw all people to himself. It's not a statement of universalism when he says he will draw all people to himself. But what he is meaning is that there will be people from all across the world who will be drawn to him like a magnet. See, the salvation is not just for the Jews. It is for everyone over the entire world. And when Jesus died on the cross, salvation was given to all or open to all. The crowd didn't understand that Christ had come to bring glory to God and die on the cross for sins. And even in their rejection, even in their rejection, Christ offers them the offer to come to him. They say in verse 34, we've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? In other words, they look at the Old Testament passages such as Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 in which they're very familiar with the term son of man. 
I kept looking into the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. The idea of the Son of Man coming was very, very familiar to them from the Old Testament. But Jesus here was talking about the Son of Man who was going to die. And that rattled them because for them, that wasn't what the Son of Man was to do. That wasn't what the Son of Man was to do at all. The Son of Man was to come and to set up a kingdom. And so they say sarcastically, who is this Son of Man? We know what the Son of Man is. Who do you think you are talking like this? And Jesus, in his grace, he says to them, despite the fact that they are being sarcastic in their response, Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. See, after entering Jerusalem, Jesus may very well have been in the temple area again. And he uses this metaphor of the light once again. You remember six months ago, from this particular time period, there was the Feast of Tabernacles. There was the Feast of Tabernacles in which there was, during that feast, a very celebratory feast. There were huge, gigantic candelabra in the temple area. And every evening there would be a ritual called the illumination of the temple. The illumination of the temple in which those candelabra at night would be lit. They would be lit. And they would emanate light from the temple area. And one Jewish, ancient Jewish source said, there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect their light. And there was celebration. The Levites would play music. The elders would have special dances. And there was a very loud celebration. One of the loudest celebrations among all of the feasts. Festive music. Dignified leaders who would be dancing for joy. It would remind them of how they followed God in the wilderness. They followed the pillar of light and also remind them of the fact that they were committed to God, who was a God of light. And it was against this backdrop that in John chapter 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life as the blazing candelabras would shine light throughout the city of Jerusalem, a claim to his deity. And he invited them to follow him who is the light of the world, despite their sarcasm and their doubt, saying, Who is this Son of Man? The Son of Righteousness has come. God is so very gracious. God is so very gracious when people don't come to the Savior. Never think how unfair God is. No, God is patient. God is patient and He's gracious. And if people come by God's drawing, there's great freedom to come. There's great freedom even in our country if one wants to, to pick up a Bible and read the Bible. There's great freedom in our country, in our world, to go to a church, 
to grow and listen to radio ministry, to listen and read on the internet, and to grow gospel tracts, many opportunities, many avenues to grow in the Lord Jesus and to come to know God. And with the explosion of one billion cell phones sold just last year, people can listen anywhere. People can come to the Savior. But the reason they don't, for two reasons, given next, verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. They were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. The first reason is that they were not believing. And the responsibility for belief is placed squarely upon their shoulders. There is culpability, there is responsibility that is borne out by the quotation for this reason in verse 38, Isaiah and verse 38. They were not. This fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our report? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 39 tells us as well. For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah has said, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their heart so that they would not see me with their eyes and perceive with their heart. Be converted that I might heal them. So, interestingly enough, the responsibility to believe is upon them. But they could not believe because God has hardened their heart. Now, a couple of interesting observations about this particular passage. John quotes Isaiah 6.10. And that is the passage in which Isaiah looks and has a vision of heaven and the Lord is on his throne. It's a very well-known passage in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, which said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Isaiah, here I am, send me. And many times you might hear that in a missions conference or something of that sort. But Isaiah 6.10, which John just quoted, refers to Isaiah's vision of God. And that apostle applies it in this particular passage, explaining that the person that is on the throne in Isaiah's vision is none other than Jesus Christ, testifying of his deity, testifying of his deity. Jesus, in keeping with his role as a judge, judicially hardened Israel. Attributing both quotes, Isaiah chapter 6 and also Isaiah chapter 51, which is also quoted here, also supports the idea that Isaiah was the entire book. Uh, he was the author of the entire book of Isaiah, not as what you might learn in some secular institutions which, which teach that there were two authors for Isaiah. But the sobering reality for this particular thing is that those who persistently harden their hearts against God find that their hearts will be hardened by God as well. For God hardens their heart, and they harden their heart. In the book of Exodus, when we first come to this idea, it's noted that ten times Pharaoh hardened his heart. And also, ten times in the book of Exodus, it is said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart 
as well. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it Pharaoh or was it God? And the answer is both. The same is true here. The people did not believe. And the culpability, the responsibility to believe is placed on their shoulders. And they also could not believe because God had blinded their eyes. Turn to Romans chapter 9, a very well-known passage as well. In Romans chapter 9, Paul addresses this particular seeming conundrum. Romans chapter 9, verse 14. For somebody might ask this particular question, in Romans chapter 9, verse 14, what shall we say then, Paul writes, there is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And here is the logical question that somebody may ask. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? In other words, how could God blame somebody for not coming to him if it's the will of God that he be hardened? On the contrary, Paul's answer, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God as if God has to give an answer for what he does? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among Gentiles." You see, God has every right to do what he so chooses to do because he is the potter, he is the creator, because he created it. If I made a model boat and my brother were to come along and smash that boat into little pieces, he would be wrong. Why? Because he didn't make it. But if I made a little model boat and I decide I wanted to dismantle and smash into pieces, I'd have every right to do so. And no one would say that would be wrong. God, in the same way, is the creator. And he is the one who has made us. And he is sovereign over all creation as well as over our salvation. And he doesn't need to answer to anyone. And I cannot expect to understand in my own finite mind, the mind of God and how God chooses to work 
God is sovereign. In John chapter 6 as well, if we turn to John chapter 6, verse 44, a reminder of God's desire of when people come to him. It says in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one. Absolutely no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. John chapter 10, 25. I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. Notice that the works testify of Jesus. That is why he did those miraculous works. But you do not believe. Why? Because you are not of my sheep. You are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There are some who are part of Jesus' fold, his sheep, and they will believe. Repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John, the sovereign hand of God and salvation, and yet the responsibility to believe is also placed upon the individual. When Jesus condemns the religious leaders, because you will not believe. So by way of application is this. That if God is convicting you of sin or reminding you of the good that you ought to do or working in your heart, don't resist what is good. Don't resist what God is prompting your heart to do because if you keep doing that and your conscience pricks at you, then God may simply give you over to your sinful desires and harden that heart. If you've never turned to God in repentance and you don't have a relationship to God and you trust only in yourself that you can be good enough somehow to get to heaven, I encourage you to turn to God. God is offering that gift and He calls out to you. Even Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Responsibility is upon us to seek God while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, and to respond to the message of the gospel. Some of the Jews, though, they did not believe, or a superficial belief, verse 42. Oh, some of even the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be thrown out of the synagogue. That was the word that was given. You follow Jesus, you'll be thrown out of the synagogue. They loved the approval of men, verse 42, than the approval of God. That is why their belief was only superficial. How can you believe Jesus asked the religious leaders, when you receive glory, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. See, coming to Christ in many countries, when a person comes to the Lord Jesus in many countries outside of the U.S., there is the idea that one is abandoning one's whole heritage many Muslim countries, there is very real persecution, very real ostracism, and your life is very real on the line. I'll always remember the young man that I knew when I was in college who wanted to be baptized, and he wanted to be baptized as a college student, but his parents were very much against 
that because they were not Christians and they threatened to disown him, outrightly disown him. He wouldn't be able to probably live at home. And he was broken because he wanted to follow God. He knew that the scriptures commanded that he be baptized, but he was afraid because his parents would threaten to kick him out of the family. So what would he do? What was he going to do? What would you have done? What would you have counseled him? Or if you were in his shoes? I'll tell you what he did. He decided to obey God and be baptized. He decided to obey God and be baptized. And I still remember the day on the day of his baptism. It was at a church in which there was a baptismal much like this right there. God worked in powerful ways that day. And I watched because his whole family had come. And they sat in that row over there. And they listened to him share the gospel message about how he came to Christ. Because God had changed their lives to support their son as he was baptized. He chose the approval of God rather than the approval of men. And so we ask ourselves, is that what we would do? Do we really want our lives to be pleasing to God, to obey God? Or am I more afraid of what people will say, afraid of what people will think, afraid of how people will view me so that I'll be in the in crowd? I recall working in different secular companies and getting to know people. And I always wanted people to know. I always wanted people to know that I was a Christian right off the bat, even in job interviews, when they would ask me, what would you do in this particular ethical situation? And I wouldn't be afraid to tell them that, you know what, I'm a Christian and I think that I need to uh, follow what the Bible says. And, and the Bible says this is what I'm to do. They would know right offhand other co-workers and things like that. And do you know what I've found? That many of them, they'll respect you for what you believe. They'll respect you for what you believe and also it would keep you out of perhaps difficult situations where they might have asked if you would do something that would be unethical. Do you know what these Jews feared more though? They feared losing their place or their position as a leader in the synagogue or among the people. They feared being disassociated with the synagogue than to save their own souls because they feared men more than they feared God. Jesus cries out and he presents to them, lastly, the benefits of accepting and the consequences of rejecting him. And that statement in verse 44, if you believe, you'll also believe in the one who sent me. It's a statement, a clear statement that tells us the impossibility of believing in God apart from believing in Jesus Christ. In other words, you can't know God unless you know who Jesus is. That's why when someone says, well, aren't all religions the same? Aren't they all just going to God? You know, God is on the top of this hill and everyone is just going up a different way. And the answer is no. The answer is clearly no. You cannot know God unless you know Jesus. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Just as John chapter 14 verse 9 says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. You cannot know God unless you know Jesus Christ. 
Anybody can, you say, well, can make that kind of a claim. Anybody can say, they can, oh, say, well, you know what? I, I, unless you know me, you won't know God. What's the difference? And the difference is that Jesus, Jesus confirmed and God confirmed who his son was. He healed the sick. He stilled the storm. He fed thousands of people. He made the blind see. He made the lame walk. He raised the dead to life. And he did miracle after miracle after miracle. Indisputable claim to back up his claim to deity. That way somebody else on the street can't say the same type of a thing willy-nilly. Jesus is the only way to God the Father. And the consequences of unbelief Jesus lays out there is that judgment will come. Judgment will come. And that judgment is severe because that judgment, that final judgment, will be in hell. Revelation 14, 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name in Matthew 25, 46, it tells us there will be eternal punishment. The Jews never understood the cross. They wanted a Messiah of their own making. Jesus came to die. Even Jews today believe that. One ancient Jewish writer writes, a presumed Messiah who is killed before completing the task, i.e., compelling all Israel to walk in the way of the Torah, repairing the breaches and observance, fighting the wars of God, building the temple in its place, gathering in the dispersed exiles of Israel, is not the Messiah. If he did not succeed in all of this or was killed, he was definitely not the Moshiach promised in the Torah, and God only appointed him in order to test the masses said a famous Jewish rabbi. That is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, he says, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. To the Jews a stumbling block. You see, Christ came in to the Passover feast, riding in on a donkey, and they had their conception of who Jesus was, his Face was faced towards the cross as he knew what was going to come and his soul was troubled and he fixed his mind upon the glory that was to come. For the joy that was set before him, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, enduring the cross, despising the shame. And even though he was mocked by the people who said, who is this son of man? He nonetheless extended to them that gracious gift of salvation, the invitation to come to him, the light of the world who would bear the sins of many and satisfy the wrath of God on the cross. You know, in the days of the pioneers, when the pioneers saw that there was a brush fire that would be coming, do you know what they do? When the pioneers saw that there would be a brush fire coming, they wouldn't be able to climb on their horses because oftentimes they wouldn't be able to make it. Horses might not be able to outrun it. And so what the pioneers did was they took a match and they burned the grass in a designated area. And then they gathered all that were living 
and stood in the middle of that large burned area. And as the flames would come, it would come and engulf all, all of the grasses around them except for what was already burned. You know, when the judgment of God comes and sweeps over all of humanity into hell, there's one spot that will be safe. And that spot is where 2,000 years ago the wrath of God was already poured out and it was already poured out on Calvary. And there the Son of God took the wrath of God that should have fallen on us. And all we need to do is come and stand the foot of the cross where we'll be safe for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the message of your Son to believe in him, the light of the world, that we might have eternal life. And I pray, Father, for any who are here who have never placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, who have never repented of their sin, who have never come to the Savior. We pray, Father, that you would draw them to yourself and open their heart wide, that they might come to the knowledge of you. And Father, may we be people who beckon others to come and stand at the foot of the cross where the wrath has been taken for sin. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen.